Well, good morning again, everyone. We're going to be in Romans 13 today, but before that, would you stand with me as we go to the text this morning? We'll do that in the prayer of a Shema. It's a Hebrew, it's a Hebrew prayer of uh, recommitment, uh, but I'd say it's a Hebrew prayer of, of regrouping. I don't know uh, what your week was like. I don't know what, uh, what happened, uh, what distractions might be here, but uh, this is a chance for us as a community together to pray and say, God, whatever happened, whatever distractions are in my life, I'm coming to you right now. Say, God, I recommit myself to you afresh, anew, and I want to hear your word uh, this morning. So let's say it together. Repeat after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Please uh, keep standing as we read Romans 13. 1 through 10 this morning. It says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be uh, commended. But for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. But let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others have fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We asked this question earlier today, but what are those things that you are entrenched in? Because we all have the things that we are convinced are true, no matter what evidence, no matter what persuasion, no matter what logic. And I am no different. I have uh, some of these things. One of them is that you will never change my mind that it was a forward pass in the 1999 Buffalo Bills Music City Miracle Game. You will never ever convince me that that was not a forward pass. And I think I've, I've, I, a few of you share in that sentiment with me. I will never be convinced that fruit and dessert go together. Fruit is good. Dessert is good. Fruit and dessert, never. It, you just, I don't care. You'll come up to me. They've, I've had this conversation a thousand times. But what about this one? If there is fruit in my dessert, I pass, just so you know. You'll never convince me otherwise. I will never relent to the truth that the Lord of the Rings is an enjoyable story. Never. All the elves and the dwarves and the, "Mm, 
the forest of Gamelon. I said, I, you will never. There are so many books and so much needless, mindless details. And I know some of you are, are, are stewing. I can see it in your eyes now. You are angry at this. And you will come up to me after the service and you will tell me why they are wonderful. I'm, I'm sorry. I am, like I said, I am entrenched. You will not get me off of that idea. I, it's just something we're going to have to agree to disagree on. See, we all have those things, right? And a lot of times they're, they're kind of benign. A lot of the times they're just kind of funny things that I don't care what you say. I don't care if you presented me all the evidence in the world. I'm just not coming off. I'm not coming off this point. I'm not getting out of my trench. But even those things that are funny, we also, though, have those things that are a little deeper, don't we? We all have those things that are just a little bit more important. The issue that you find central, the party you believe is inspired, the trench you just can't leave. And what I find so captivating about the Bible is that the questions we are asking are the same questions they were asking. And today, Paul is answering a question that literally had hundreds of years of political history behind it. He isn't just taking a detour to throw in some detail about civic life. This question was at the heart of how Christians were to live, particularly these Christians that lived in the capital city of Rome. And this question that they ask is the same question we ask. But we'll get to that in a minute. Because in order to get at the question, first we need to go back to the beginning. Genesis 1, all the way back. And a lot of times it's true. We have to go all the way back to the beginning to understand the flow of God's history and the history of God's people to see how this had built over centuries, over thousands and thousands of years. And so in Genesis 1, 1 through 11, is all about how we messed things up. God creates us. He provides for us. He's present with us. But that's not enough for us. And so we turn our backs. And the narrative of the first 11 chapters is how things get worse and worse and worse. Until finally we get to chapter 12 and God says, enough. I have to do something. I have to step in. I have to intervene. And so God begins to reveal to one man named Abram, uh, later called Abraham, his restoration plan, the way that he is going to redeem and bless the entire world. And so in, in chapter 12, he says this to Abram. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And then later he says, and you will be a blessing. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And you will be a blessing. Now, the word nation in the Hebrew is the word goy. And goy is a political term. It means a describing a people with a common land, language, and government. Goy is what we think of when we think of a nation, or a kingdom, or a people. And the word blessing in the Hebrew is the word barak. 
And blessing in the Bible always revealed the presence of God. Sure, that might, blessing might come in good crops or a good uh, a year with your cattle or, or, or abundance of children, but it was always meant to be a symbolic way in which we can see God's goodness and therefore see his presence. And so Abraham is called to leave his country and the people that he had known all his life to be part of a new kingdom, a different one, a nation. And his loyalties therefore needed to shift. He had to go away from one goy and move to another goy. Because your land and your country and your people were everything to you. But now you are leaving it for another And the point was to be a blessing so that this new thing that you're going to do, this new reality you're going to create, the shift I'm going to have in your loyalties from one to another will eventually grow out into a nation that will then bless the entire world. And as the story continues, Abraham's descendants become this kingdom of Israel. And they follow God and his law And as they did that, they would be a distinct, different, curious way of life together. They would live a distinct, different, curious way of life together. But it would be wildly captivating, satisfying, and desirable. And over the course of Israel's history, they limped along and eventually failed at living into their identity as a nation apart from the rest. So they're exiled out of their kingdom land to live in other nations. And even after God brings them back, they are still ruled by foreign oppressors, four to be exact. They're ruled by the powers of Babylon and Assyria and Persia and eventually the Greeks. In fact, in the book of Daniel, fascinating, he receives a vision from the Lord. And it says this, it says this, in this vision, he sees these beasts, four great beasts coming out of the sea. And they were like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, and one who had 10 horns. And the four beasts we learn later on in Daniel are represent the four great empires that would rule over them. These four great empires would come, coming out like beasts as as Daniel began to see it in his vision, coming up out of the sea, these four beasts, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, and the Greeks would come and rule over God's people that were supposed to be different, that were supposed to be this new nation, this set-apart different thing that would be a blessing to the world. And because they limped along, they could no longer live independently of themselves. And so now they are conquered people. And they live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years under the dictatorship of another. However, God still promised that he would preserve his holy kingdom as a beacon of blessing to the world. And in this same chapter, in chapter 7, after he declares the four beasts are going to come, he reminds them once again of what he's going to do. And he says this. He says, the four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people, holy meaning set apart, different, the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. 
So even in the midst of the captivity, even in the midst of the exile, even in the midst of being oppressed and dominated and ruled by these foreign, four foreign oppressors, the promise still remained for God's people as they waited in anticipation that someday, someday we will rise again. Someday God will give us back this kingdom. And in the meantime, we must continue to live differently, even in the midst of the oppression, even in the midst of the domination, even in the midst of all of these nations, all of these empires that rule over us. We will still continue to hold a remnant together until the time comes when God will break the doors open and restore our kingdom once more. And so, for much of Israel's history, and here's your first fill-in this morning, much of Israel's history is figuring out this question, the big question, how do we uphold our calling to be a distinct, different, curious kingdom while living under the jurisdiction of another one? That's the question for literally 700 years Israel is asking themselves again and again in every situation and every time a new ruler comes up, every time they're faced with different things. That's what a lot of the, old te- the second half of the Old Testament is about, asking questions. Daniel himself is faced, right, with the question of do I eat food? Do I eat this food that, that is given to, to idols? And he says no. Because I'm answering this question, how do I keep, how do I uphold my calling to be distinct, different, and curious in a kingdom when I'm under the jurisdiction of another? And then when he's asked to bow to the idols, once again, Daniel says, no, I'm not going to do that because I am living into my identity as a different kingdom, a different nation, like my grandfather, great-grandfathers did before me, like my patriarch Abraham was called out to do and left his people for. I'm going to be different. And so I will not bow to your idols because I am a distinct, different, and curious kingdom even though I live under the jurisdiction of you, at that point, the Persians. And this is the question that they keep asking and asking and asking. And now, about 60 years before Jesus, the Roman Empire enters the picture. Empire number five. And by the time Romans was written, God's people were under direct Roman rule, under local representation. And in general, it can be said that these Roman representatives had little sensitivity to God's customs and sought public order as its highest value. Many were tyrants, open to bribes and violence. There were frequent resistance among the Jews, which were met with forceful retaliation from Rome. This was a long period of tension and unrest. But for the Christians living in the capital city of Rome itself, the bigger problem was the one living in their backyards the emperor himself. Because if you remember, before Romans was written, Emperor Claudius ruled. And if you remember, it was Claudius who ordered the exile of all the Jews out of Rome, which is actually kind of part of the start of the tension for why Romans is written in the first place. Because these Jews got kicked out for five years. They were expelled out of Rome because uh, civil disorder had arisen. And like we said, Rome was so interested in keeping the peace and keeping the power and keeping the control 
that when they sensed unrest, they dealt with it swiftly. And so if you're a Jew, if you're one of God's people living in Rome, one day you're there and the next day you're gone. It was also Claudius who decided that he wanted a, a statue built of himself in the temple of the Jews, which of course was a big problem for them, led to more, uh, more uh, unrest, more tension, as it were. And then when Romans was written, it was in the reign of Emperor Nero. And Nero was the cruelest emperor of all to the Christians. One Roman historian recounts Nero's persecution like this, saying this, in their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and eaten to death by dogs and nailed to crosses or set fire to. Or when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. A feeling of compassion arose towards the sufferers because they seemed not to be cut off from the public good, but were victims of the ferocity of one man. So then in Revelation, which was likely written just a few years after Nero's reign ended, and a few years after Romans was written, John begins to give these, these images again of what empire looks like. And remember those four great beasts envisioned in Daniel? Well, check out how John uses the imagery in Revelation. He says this, I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. You see, he's combining all of the empires, all of the beasts together to make this kind of super beast, if it were. And he's directing his attention at the Roman Empire itself. You think those four were bad. Well, now I see a beast that combines them all. A super beast, the Roman Empire, the ultimate anti-kingdom. And later on, he writes this in the book. He says, this calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. And in languages that use letters for numerals, it's been noted that in, like Hebrew and Greek, the official title, Caesar Nero, comes out 666. Watch out for the beast of the sea, it's coming. And the question deepens. The reality only deepens the question that they have been asking for centuries. How do we uphold our calling to be a distinct, different, unusual kingdom while living under the jurisdiction of another increasingly hostile kingdom? The question kept coming. What does it look like for me to live as a distinct nation like my forefathers, like Abraham, like God calls me to do, while living under the jurisdiction of another. So, God's people debated. Over and over, they question it over and over again. Well, can we do this? Well, are we allowed to do that? Uh, if, if we want to be distinct, but we have to do this, if, 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 if Rome tells us we need to do that, are we sacrificing our morality? Are we sacrificing our distinctiveness in order to do that? And this debate was a huge debate in Jesus' time. 
Huge debate in the early church. What does it look like to be distinct while still living under, under the jurisdiction of another? And interesting, oftentimes this question revolved around one specific ta- topic, taxes. Taxes was actually one of the most specific, uh, debated, hotly debated things about how we live in distinction from Rome. Because some leaned more conservative. They saw things like paying taxes as being complicit with the empire. God commanded us not to have any idols or graven images. So how can we use Roman coin with Caesar's face on it? And your next fill-in, on the extreme side were the traditionalists, also known as the zealots. On the extreme side of this camp were the traditionalists. And they wanted strict Jewish culture and were ready to fight for it. And I'm talking straight out violence. And of course, this is the extreme. But the zealot camp believed that nothing short of God's undivided perfection is anything we can do. And if anyone tells us differently, they deserve to die. And so on one hand, you have the zealots. But others leaned a little more progressively. They saw things like paying taxes as a natural way to live within the Roman borders. And on the extreme side of this party were the Hellenizers, who totally assimilated into the Roman way of life. Total assimilation into what Rome asked and expected. And the ultimate Hellenizer was the tax collector. This is why they were so hated in Jesus' day. Individuals from within God's people were recruited to enforce taxation. Not only were they picking a side, they were actively conspiring with the Roman Empire for personal profit. It was seen as nothing short of betrayal. So on one side, you have the conservatives saying, no tax, we do not pay taxes to Rome. The extreme case being the zealot. On one other side, you've got, listen, I mean, we've got to live. We've got to live within this Roman culture. We're not willing to fight and kill for this stuff. I don't think God expects us to do that. So let's just pay taxes and keep it quiet. Of course, the extreme end of that side being the Hellenizers, who went a little too far and began to look and act and smell like Rome to the point where you've lost your distinctness. I I, I can't tell the difference anymore. In fact, Jesus is asked this very thing. Take a look at Luke chapter 20. We have it up on the screen. Take a look. It says this. The religious leaders sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Talk about a setup there, huh? Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, 
Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. You talk about a politically charged question. You think talking about walls is challenging? This has centuries of history behind it. But it is essentially asking the very same question. How, Jesus, do we uphold our calling to be a distinct, different, curious kingdom while living under the jurisdiction of another kingdom? And now it's a trap because Jesus will be in trouble no matter which one he says, no matter what side he picks. If he sides with the progressives, he will be on put on notice from the Jewish leaders, right? Even the way they set up the question. We know you're good. We know you teach God's way. So you wouldn't dare tell us to pay taxes to Caesar, right? You wouldn't dare tell us to just assimilate and be one of those Hellenizers, right? Right, Jesus? So let me tell you. Let me ask you. Should we pay taxes to Rome? Jesus knows if he chooses the progressive side, he's in trouble with the Jewish leaders. But he also knows if he sides with the conservatives, Rome will find out that a rabbi is going around telling people not to pay taxes. It's a trap. But the brilliance of Jesus is that he won't play those games. He won't pick a side, and he won't choose a trench. Jesus gives his answer, and in our passage this morning, Paul reiterates what Jesus has to say. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God. Because that's essentially what Paul is saying in our passage this morning. When you look at this passage, when you look at Romans 13 in a nutshell, Paul is affirming what Jesus had to say, the brilliance of Jesus. Because he says this, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul instructs the Romans, again, remember the backstory. Remember what, what, what uh, Christians in Rome were going through at that time. And he says, be subject to them. Because they keep peace and they uphold the common good, or they're supposed to. And he says, pay taxes to them who give their full time to governing. And he says, honor and respect them when they're owed. Paul is absolutely willing to say, when Caesar deserves it, give it to him. When Caesar's owed honor, give him honor. When Caesar's owed respect, give him respect. In fact, uh, one story goes that the Jews knew that they couldn't sacrifice and offer uh, uh, foreign, foreign gods, Roman gods in their temple. And so the, the deal they struck with Rome is that they would light candles and pray for their leaders. And so that's what they did. That was the tension. That was the way, one of the ways they answered the question. We cannot worship your foreign gods, and we certainly can't do it in the temple. But we'll pray for your leaders, and we'll respect them, and we'll light a candle for the wisdom of Caesar. But we will not worship Caesar as God. And so Paul says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Be subject to them. Pay your taxes. Honor and respect them when owed. But give to God what is God's. Because he says there is no authority except that which God has established. He actually reiterates that a couple times in the passage, just to make sure we're clear. The authority they have, they only have because God, who is superior and on top, has given it to them. And so there is no authority except that which God has established. 
and that all of our resources are his, and that he deserves all the glory and honor and respect. You see, we aren't done asking the question, how do we uphold the calling to be a distinct and different and curious kingdom while living under the jurisdiction of another? But we're also not done answering the question by playing the same games and picking the same sides and choosing the same trenches. Because some of us lean like a zealot. We see things in our culture, they're antithetical to God, and we want to fight against it. And our weapons are not swords and spears, but yard signs and Facebook posts and argumentation and seclusion. And all the while, we cease to be a blessing to the world. While some of us lean like Hellenizers. We conform to the empire so that you can't tell one kingdom from another. We're okay living and breathing and smelling like our world. And in doing so, we put the kingdom of this land and the kingdom of God on equal footing. And our lives don't look distinct or different or curious And all the while, we cease to be a blessing to our world. And the trouble is, is that most of the time, or often enough, we're unwilling to change our minds. We're unwilling to be convinced. We're unwilling to relent. We're entrenched. But friends, love can tether the trenches. Love can tether the trenches. Paul says this in Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. You see, we want to fulfill God's law to be a distinct, different, and curious kingdom because the point of it is to be a blessing to the world. And the way we do it is to love to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. Remember Romans 12? That's his thesis for everything. Romans 12 is the thesis. That first, that first is of everything we're going to talk about for the rest of the book. When we begin to lay down our lives as living sacrifices, we begin to sense how we love radically in this world so that we don't have to be right and we don't have to win and we don't have to be accepted when we must choose to be different. Love tethers the trenches. I'd like to invite the band up as we close. Did you know that Jesus picks a zealot and a tax collector to be two of his disciples? Let me say that again. Did you know that Jesus picks a zealot and a tax collector to be two of his 12 disciples? Talk about two of the most divisive people imaginable in that culture. And Jesus willingly and knowingly puts those two together. Because he believed that love could tether the trenches. And when two people who have no business getting along work together to reveal a distinct, different, and curious way of life, it becomes wildly captivating, satisfying, and desirable. When people looked at Jesus and saw a zealot and a tax collector working together in love, 
It was a radical example of what it means to be a distinct, different, and curious kingdom because no other context would that ever work. And yet with the love of Christ, it works. Now that's interesting. That's different. That's curious. And I want to know more about that. It's a blessing. Love can do that because love can tether the trenches. So let me address each of us. For our recovering Hellenizers, and this can look a couple of ways. If I were to tell your coworkers, your neighbors, your non-church friends that you were a Christian, would they be surprised? Would they go, really? Bill? I didn't, I didn't mean, I just picked a, I just picked a random, random name. <laughs> Or would they go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I always knew there was something a little different about Bill. In a good way. Yeah, that makes sense. Would they be able to tell the difference? And does your conduct and your language and your attitude resemble Jesus? Or is it hard to distinguish between the two? When you lean on Hellenization, it actually can look a, a number of different ways. Another one, similarly, have you placed such value on the kingdom of this land that it is on equal footing with the, other, with the kingdom of God? Because there is no and after God. It is God and nothing. We give our country everything it deserves, our subjection, our taxes, our respect. We will give Caesar what is Caesar's, but we will not give it what is God's, our ultimate loyalty. And for us recovering zealots, let me tell you, no one has ever accepted the love of Christ after being convinced they were wrong on a Facebook debate. No one's ever at their computer going, you know, that heated exchange we just had, they made some valid points. I think they're right. I'm, I'm going to change my mind. All it does is it entrench us more. It divides us. But friends, love can tether the trenches. Your desire to be right does not supersede your responsibility to love. Let me say that again. Your desire to be right does not supersede your responsibility to love. And the biblical theme of the New Testament is not to fight, but to witness with your life, to lay down your life as a living sacrifice. Because love can tether the trenches. Let's pray. I'm just as guilty as anyone. I want to be right. I want to win. Sometimes I just want to be accepted and blend in. God, I've been a zealot and I've been a Hellenizer. But what I want most is to be your child. 
So Lord, I will give the governing authorities around me all of my subjection and, and, and the resources they require and the respect they're owed. But I will not give them what is yours. So Lord, may I be a blessing. May our church be a blessing to this world. May we go in love to bring people out of their trenches and to invite them into the middle where we can love them and show them a distinct, different, curious, beautiful, wonderful, captivating, compelling way of life that's different than anything they've seen before. We're zealots and tax collectors can break bread together. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Love us where we need to love. Encourage us where we need to encourage. And above all, help us to continue asking and answering and debating and wrestling with the question, God, how can we be a distinct, different, curious culture, nation, kingdom in this world until you take us home and then there will be only one kingdom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are king, you are Lord, you are Jesus. As we limp along until that day, Lord, help us to do it in love because love will tether the trenches. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray.